0: To the Buzz, the podcast of the Jazz Journalists Association, where we discuss news and views from those in the jazz media, writers, broadcasters, photographers, videographers, and other professionals documenting the entire ecosystem of jazz. I'm Rick Mitchell, broadcaster, print journalist, and JJA board member, and today we are talking with JJA member Bill Mikowski on the subject of music criticism, then and now. Bill Mikowski is a longtime contributor to Downbeat, Jazz is, Guitar Player, and Absolute Sound magazines. Since moving to New York City from his hometown of Milwaukee in 1980, he has written over 1,000 sets of liner notes and over 7,000 articles for various magazines. He is also the author of eight books, including Jocko, The Extraordinary and Tragic Life of Jocko Pastorius, and Ode to a Tenor Titan, The Life and Times and Music of Michael Brecker. In 2004, he was awarded the Helen Oakley Dance Robert Palmer Award for Excellence in Newspaper Magazine Online Feature or Review Writing by the Jazz Journalists Association, and he received the JJA's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2011. He is also the recipient of the 2015 Bruce Lundvall Award presented by the Montreal Jazz Festival. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Thank you, Rick. So let's start with an obvious question. What made you want to be a music critic, and more specifically, a jazz critic?
1: That is something that was kind of thrust upon me at the time, back in 1976. I had an internship at the Milwaukee Journal, the daily newspaper in town. And as part of that, I was getting a taste of all the aspects of working on a newspaper. I did one week on the police beat, one week with courts, one week on the copy editing desk, All of it. So I was a journalism student, not knowing what I was going to be going into. I had an interest in music from my own personal background of music listening and a brother who was four years older who was feeding me a lot of stuff early on. But that summer in 76, the guy who had the gig as the reviewer on the daily newspaper got in trouble, got arrested, went to jail. They turned to me and said, you want to do this? And I said, no, nah, okay. So at that point, I started reviewing everything that they had in the feature department from reviews of uh, Tammy Wynette and Kiss, Chuck Mangione, Blue Oyster Cult, Chet Atkins, anything. The Circus, Up With People. So I was getting my chops together in terms of reviewing and feature writing, sort of on a fluke because this guy was removed who had the gig, solidly had the gig. He was also a pal of mine. I did a lot of jamming with him back then. And he was a great blues harmonica player. And we had a little trio that we did some gigs occasionally, but he went to jail and the position opened up and I took it and sort of kept on going with it from there and moved to New York in 1980. And here I am still doing it.
0: Congratulations. You've had a very long and distinguished career. I want to ask you, though, do you think given the huge changes in the first off in the print media and also changes in music and online, et cetera, do young people today have the same motivation that you did to get into writing about music?
1: Wow. Well, there's so many more outlets available. There's so much more music, so many more recordings bands forming, it's indeed a different era. And I continued with this because I was excited, constantly surprised and exhilarated by new music I would encounter. And I'm sure young people using that as their imperative for going into our career are pursuing a sense of advocacy in journalism, stuff that they're turned on to that they like, that they want to spread the word on. That's essentially where I was coming from. I think that was true of Howard Mandel as well. I remember, I think the first time I heard that term, advocacy journalism was from Howard way back when. And I agree with that. It's basically you want to pull people's coats to something you think is hip or new or exciting. And I've been doing that along the way. And I continue to be excited by things at this ripe old age of what I am now, 69. I just turned, but I'm still excited by new things. And I think young people, regardless of what the financial rewards are, they might continue to do that out of sheer curiosity and excitement for the music that turns them on.
0: When I started writing for the afternoon daily paper in Portland, Oregon in the late 1970s, cut and paste literally meant cut and paste. Then later when I was doing overnight reviews for the Houston Chronicle, we had these cheap laptops that worked about half the time. And it was fairly common for me to have to dictate my review into the phone while somebody transcribed it into the keyboard. How has the changes in technology affected the way you work?
1: Hugely, remarkably, miraculously. I remember back in the day when I had moved to New York, I actually got a job that brought me to New York. I was the managing editor of a weekly publication on Long Island called Good Times, and that went for about two and a half years. So by 1983, I quit and just cut myself off from that. That was the last time I worked in an office, by the way. And ever since I've been working at home freelancing. But when I started freelancing, I was literally typing on a manual typewriter. A selectric came along later, but I was using whiteout, typing on a with paper on a manual typewriter, putting my finished stories in an envelope. I lived in Queens at the time, Jamaica, Queens, driving into Manhattan to deliver my manuscript to FedEx. So it was overnight to get to downbeat on time for the deadline. You know, sometimes driving manically over an icy Williamsburg Bridge or whatever just to meet that deadline, stand in line at FedEx and deliver my package and check in the next day to see if it arrived okay. And then suddenly, with the advent of computers, and I had that first original tiny Macintosh computer, pushing the send button. And it's there. That was miraculous. I didn't have to drive into Manhattan for half an hour, and you know, uh, under uh, icy road conditions, etc. So every bit of technology that came along has been so helpful. The cut and paste function, as you mentioned, and it's just speeded up the process. In some ways, the answer for me to maintaining a freelance career has not been getting paid more, because that's not really been happening, but writing faster. <laughs> you yeah. know, you want you want more money, write faster. So the computer has absolutely helped that to the point where I'm maybe kicking out four or five stories a week, which I wouldn't have been able to do on a manual typewriter using Whiteout and mailing in my stories at FedEx. So yeah, it's been really miraculous to see all these innovations in technology.
0: I spent most of my career as a daily paper guy but i also did quite a bit of freelancing sometimes in between daily paper gigs and sometimes over and beyond that and it was always pressure you know you're you're trying to finish one assignment on deadline while you're pitching two or three more at the same time you've been doing that for decades has it gotten harder i know you write faster but given the fact that most many daily papers, I don't know about most, no longer have music critics, staff or freelance writing reviews, and magazines are dying. Has it become harder for you to sustain this career?
1: It's actually become easier because of the longevity of my writing. I've established a number of contacts. So people keep feeding me assignments and stories, whether it's editors or artists. I'm constantly getting pitches from people who want me to write liner notes for their next album. In the 80s, I was literally having to scrap to get a gig and I hardly even pitch things anymore. The stories are coming to me pretty much. It's, it's an unusual situation. I wouldn't compare it to, man, starting in the freelance business now, I have no idea how young people would do it. One of the keys of that is that the rents are impossible. You have to make so much money just to Survive. When I moved to New York in 1980, my rent was 450 a month, so I didn't have to write all that much to pay my rent. And now, if it's less than 1600 a month, I'd be surprised. Yeah, my situation is unusual in that I keep getting Fed assignments, both in the states. And I got an email just the other day from a guy I've known for a long time who's got a new album. He lives in France, and he's like, "Oh, can you do my liner notes?" and I've also made contacts over time beyond the States, writing for publications in Italy and Germany Japan. This has all helped sustain me, augmenting whatever work I get in the States. Like I say, liner notes has been a significant and ongoing source of income, as well as record company bios or artist bios. If I had to rely solely on magazines in the States, I don't know if I would have made it this far.
0: You've also written eight books. From my experience, I've written three. Writing books is hard. What keeps you going with that? Are you paid sufficiently for your hard work of putting all that time in? The the Brecker book probably took a couple of years, right? Yeah,
1: I did all the interviewing for that in 2019, pre-pandemic. So I had moved to West Hartford, Connecticut, where I currently live. And I was uh, doing these trips back to Manhattan, two hours on the bus, like $15 each way, pretty cheap. My sister still lives in Inwood, upper Manhattan. So I would crash with her and spend a few days and make the rounds interviewing people at their homes, or in some cases going to like Jeff Tain Watts, going to Pennsylvania or Adam Nussbaum, who lived up in Westchester. So that was a full year of interviewing. And then the next year of writing and then getting it together with the publisher in terms of the final draft and permissions on photos and all this other stuff that I wasn't expecting to do. But yeah, the whole process took about two years on that. And in terms of financially rewarding, hardly, which is why I continued freelancing. And while I was writing that book, I was kicking out stories for Downbeat and Jazz Is, Absolute Sound Guitar Player. I have a monthly column that's been going on for like 30 years with a German magazine called Jazz Thing, doing that every month. And I had never got a book deal where they paid me enough upfront money to focus solely on that at the expense of freelance work. I've always been freelancing. I know of some people who have done like I knew this guy who did a book on YouTube, and he got like, I think, $250,000 advance. And it's like, I'm sure he took off that year or more to do that book. Strictly focused on that. But given the somewhat meager advances that I got on these books, the Jocko book, the Pat Martino book, the Brecker book, I did a Keith Richards book. I mean, it didn't allow me to really focus solely on that. So I was always continually freelancing, whether it was liner notes, bios, or feature stories and record reviews, that sort of thing.
0: One other change that has taken place is the evolution of social media. I remember when Amazon first started for a year, they attempted to do thumbnail album reviews of seemingly every album that was ever released. I made a fair share of money by doing those. Also, everybody else can add their opinion on there too. A lot of times, you know, you'll get somebody going, OMG, this is awesome. This is the best thing I've ever heard. Or you get a review that is so positive that you can't help but suspect that somebody was paid for that or it's their brother who wrote it. Do informed, independent opinions still make a difference as far as you're concerned in the overall discussion of our art form, particularly with jazz, I guess?
1: Yeah, I'm interested in reading them. I'm not necessarily agreeing with them. The great curmudgeon John McDonough is famous for his two-star reviews, some of which I agree with and some of which I don't agree with. But I admire his opinion and his sense of humor that often comes through his writing. Definitely for those people who are curious about this music, they want to seek out informed opinion on it. I had mentioned to you before some Yelp restaurant reviews were later found to be written by people who were hired by the restaurants. That sort of thing is dubious. And I don't know to what degree that happens in the Amazon reviews you were talking about. But, you know, I think Downbeat is still a very reliable. There's quite a legacy there. And I respect the voices that I've read over time in that magazine. Sadly the whole thing with Jazz Times is a fiasco because that publication which I began writing for in the in the early 80s when it was still newsprint and my first piece for them was on Bob Moses as when it was newsprint folded over man that's cultivated some important voices over time and to see that it's been annihilated. I mean, there is no archive of that magazine online anymore that anyone can have access to that I'm aware of. That's a travesty. I certainly admire the voices that I read in Downbeat and and a few others abroad. But yeah, I think it's important to keep those publications going and letting those voices uh, be heard.
0: When you're writing a review, who do you see as your audience? Who are we writing for? I mean, it seems like on the one hand, informed jazz critics are in kind of a dialogue with musicians and producers and record labels. But what about the quote-unquote lay reader? While downbeat may be an important exception, it seems fairly rare these days that you read a negative review. Nothing gets lower than three stars. Remember the the downbeat controversy with weather report when they got one star, and which I didn't necessarily agree with. But that just doesn't seem to really happen anymore. What do you think?
1: Like I say, I still see two-star in the hot box and downbeat. John McDonnell going two stars on this whatever smooth jazz album or something. I think editors are assigning reviews to writers who they think will enjoy this record. They're not setting it up for failure. They're not necessarily giving a some cat who's into bebop, giving him a smooth jazz record to review. I don't know. That would be an interesting question to submit to some editors, Howard.
2: <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't hear the I didn't hear that question. What was it?
0: JJA president.
2: Hi, Howard. Hi, Rick. Hi, Bill. Sounds like you've been having a lively discussion.
1: He was an editor at Downbeat, so I'm curious to hear about how editors assign reviews. Do they think about giving a review to someone that might be sympathetic or liking this particular music, or do they go for the opposite? giving a bebop cat a smooth jazz record to review?
2: I think that it varies. When I was at Downbeat, I would try to match up people who had a particular interest in an instrument. For instance, there was somebody who was really liked to explore keyboard players, pianists, and I would try to make sure that he at least was basically in his ballywick there. But you assess you know, what the writer can do. Now I do record reviews for Downbeat, and I just accept whatever they give me. And I think that they give me whatever they got left over or something like that. It's very random. And actually, I've just written a record review of an album, which I wrote back to the editor and said, this album is not for me. And he said, I want to hear what you have to say about it anyway. In that review, I think I broke one of my personal rules. I wrote more about my response than really d- getting deep into the music and giving it the generosity it probably deserved because it was a skilled record. It was a jazz adaptations of Bach. And as I said in this review, I don't go to Bach for jazz, and I don't know why anybody would. Two stars, two and a half? I gave it three. I said, it's a good record. It's not for me.
0: There's a whole generation of rock critics that wrote based on the influence of Lester Bangs, where it was your personal response that mattered, not so much whether the music was good or not. But am I remembering it wrong? But weren't you the downbeat editor who published the one-star review of Weather Report?
2: I think it was a two-star review, but yes, I was. And I went back to the reviewer, and we talked about it. I think it was David Less was the reviewer, and he's still around. He's a J.J. member, I think. He said, This is how I feel strongly about this. It was Mr. Gone, was uh, right. And uh, I haven't gone back to listen to Mr. Gone for many, many years now. So I, I don't know how it holds up in the Weather Report repertoire. We went to talk though to Joe Zawano because Weather Report came to town when that had just come out the two star review. Right. Larry Birnbaum, who was also a downbeat reviewer. And I went to see the band, and then we talked to them in the green room, and Joe Zalinzal says, Joe Zalinzal does not make two-star records.
1: This is a five-star record. (laughs) What are you talking about? Yeah.
2: I think it's valuable. The current Downbeat editor, Mike West, also a J.J. member, says that he is looking to have more candor in the reviews. You know, he doesn't want it to be namby-pamby. He does not want everything to just automatically be a three-star or a four-star. But, you know, what issues are we dealing with when we make these judgments? You know, like I say, I, I cross the taboo. I usually would not talk about my personal machine. I don't care who's playing Bach jazz. It's like, really, I like jazz. I don't like Bach, that you know, it's beside the point. If you want to listen to Bach, listen to Bach. You
0: know, I think we got time for one or two more questions. Bill, you mentioned liner notes earlier. Are those still relevant in the age of downloads? I still prefer to have vinyl or CD, but I download a fair share of stuff and then burn it onto CD. So I sometimes, so I can listen in the car. I don't have liner notes. Record labels are still willing to pay writers to do that?
1: I'm writing liner notes all the time, at least one a week, really. Great for me. I don't really know. So you never see liner notes at all?
0: No, I see them on CDs and vinyl. I don't see them on the downloads from iTunes. I'm
1: speaking from a boastful point of view. I think liner notes can be very insightful. And for the listener, revealing... Things beyond the obvious, either in conversation with the artist or some insightful commentary about the connectedness of things that this track might relate to something else in that artist's career or a homage to somebody else. And pointing these things out is interesting to me. I'm not sure to what degree readers care about that, but I'm mindful of providing that And when I write lighter notes. If I hear somebody quoting something or referring back to this record that Miles did 50 years ago, I'm going to bring it up and try to make the connections here, connect
0: the dots for the reader. Howard, you want to jump in?
2: Yeah, I wanted to let you know that All About Jazz is trying to be a repository for all liner notes. They're asking we writers who have the copyrights, usually for our own liner notes, to post their and I posted like 25, 30 liner notes there from my catalog.
0: And I'll keep doing that as soon as I find more. Final All question. about jazz.com. One final question. We're the geezers of journalism at this point. We started out as young guys, sometimes being criticized by the generations before us who thought anything with an electric bass was a sellout. We grew up listening to Jimi Hendrix, so it, but... What advice would you give a young person that was interested in writing about music, either for a career or at least for a serious hobby, and inescapably also wants to get paid? What advice could you offer?
1: I would advise them to check out the history and see how this all relates, how it all hooks up. Jazz was not invented by Mark Turner. A lot of Berkeley students might not understand that, but Check out Coleman Hawkins and see how it relates to this. And I would say, do a deep dive into the history of jazz and make it connected to what is happening now, because it is a continuum. And that's important to understand. Howard, what do
2: you think? Be a good writer. Have something to say that people want to read. Figure out how to give it to them in a way they want to read it. Yeah, you've got to know the music. I mean, you've got to have something you have to say that's valuable. But I think you got to be a reader and a writer, first off. Journalistic experience helps a lot, too. The who, what, where, when, why. The sense of how long a piece should be. A narrative arc. Understanding the people you're interviewing as how to translate them to the page. All that stuff is good. But you get that out of reading a lot, I think.
1: And keeping open-minded and being a curious person.
0: We've been talking with Bill Mikowski and Howard Mandel about Music criticism, specifically jazz criticism, then and now. Thank you for listening to The Buzz, a podcast produced by the Jazz Journalists Association. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Bill. We release new episodes monthly on all the major platforms. To learn more about us, go to jjanews.org. This episode was edited by Wiz Petta. The John Michaels composition, Big Vic, is our theme music. I'm Rick Mitchell. Peace.